first of all, I'm, I'm very grateful to see uh, members of the uh, city police in the audience. I noticed they were sitting with Art Sanford, and I was wondering how long it would take for the police to catch up with Mr. Sanford. So I'm glad to see that that is uh, taking place finally. Thank God. Now to my, to my topic. There are things which must cause a man to lose his reason, or else he has none to lose. That's a quote from a book titled Man's Search for Meaning. The author is Viktor Frankl. He was um, a psychologist and he was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps. And he speaks of uh, certain types of abuse that he uh, experienced. I'm here to speak of another kind of abuse that is not talked about, and it's financial abuse. What if I were to tell you that financial crime is doing more damage to Canadians than the cost of every other crime in the country combined? What if I were to tell you I was not, uh, I was not talking about crimes where financial people take your money and run away with it, but I'm talking about crimes by people posing as trusted professionals and who then take this trust and abuse it? Would this sound real to you, or would it sound make-believe? To a number of people, it sounds like fantasy. What if I could show you how this were done? Welcome to the story of how I lost my ability to reason. I worked in the investment industry for two decades, from 1984 to 2004, when I took early retirement. I failed so badly at asking the industry to follow its ethical codes, that I felt I had to leave the industry. It was hurting my life. It was hurting my health. I refused to be a good team player and financially abuse people who placed their trust in me. The harder I tried, the more punishment I received. In my investment career, I found myself torn between two separate worlds, a real world where there's real things happen, consequences and causes, and a make-believe world where reality is often ignored. Marketing and profits rule, and pretense was king. A make-believe world where an industry can alter the truth to make more money. A world where right is often wrong, and where my financial industry can buy full-page newspaper ads to tell you exactly the opposite. The last time I recall seeing an entire industry play make-believe with the public in this fashion is when I think back to the tobacco industry of the 1960s. If someone here need a reminder of what that was like, watching an industry buy its way into the minds of the public, I brought an ad from a magazine from 1960 over there which says, 113,000 doctors recommend Camel cigarettes more than any other cigarette. I'd like you to think of that ad the next time you see a full-page ad for the financial industry telling you how trustworthy and how full of integrity they are. Today, the industry uses full-page ads to make you believe that financial crime and financial abuse is not occurring and is not a problem. I think the headlines tell us otherwise. I'd like to talk about the difference between real and make-believe. I find the industry... Um, assurances that we are protected, I find that to be an abuse of the truth, and I find it as upsetting as I found the financial abuse of clients. I'd like to give you a different view. I was 24 years old when I joined the investment industry, and I had no skills, 
and no idea how to deal with a system where a young man cannot figure out what's right and wrong on a given day. I thought I knew right from wrong. My father brought me to Southern Alberta Council meetings before he died, and I was, my mind was opened up a little bit. But in my business, morning meetings never discussed right and wrong. They discussed sales, revenues, and commissions. When I first witnessed salespeople putting the clients into certain mutual funds to earn free trips from the mutual fund company, I was told I'd be fired if I ever spoke of this. It was my very first exposure to an industry code of silence, which took precedence over the industry code of ethics. In my business, we were sometimes punished for following the code of ethics, and I saw tens of thousands of salesmen rewarded for financially abusing their clients, trusting and vulnerable clients, mostly elderly. Let me give you just one example of how we find ourselves on a slippery slope. The financial industry is allowed to use fake titles to make the public believe things which aren't true, things that help the industry violate your trust. One such title is that of vice president, given to salesmen who generate top commissions in the industry. Here's what a Quebec Superior Court judge said recently about this form of industry misrepresentation. Judge's comments come from a case titled Markarian versus CIBC, and they can be found on the website investorvoice.ca. Justice Seneca of the Quebec Superior Court is speaking about an elderly couple who had the money taken from them by CIBC after a CIBC salesman was exposed in fraud. The bank seized $1.4 million from their accounts, leaving them with $2.54. Despite full knowledge from the bank that the customer was an innocent victim and the salesman was acting in a fraudulent manner, the CIBC still attempted to confiscate this elderly, didn't attempt, they did confiscate this elderly couple's savings and made them go through a five-year legal battle for a couple in their 70s to get the money back. <clears throat> he said the brokerage appropriated the money illegally treated the Markarians in an arrogant and degrading manner and cruelly failed to control and supervise its employee. CIB must assume responsibility for the fraud of which the Markarians were victims. Judge Seneca said it's responsible not only indirectly, but directly. The judge has said that there's fraud in this case, and I ask you, where are the police? I'll get to that later. The brokerage behavior was both reprehensive and irresponsible, he goes on to say. So that was the bank I was referring to. And I never worked at CIBC, so I don't have an axe to grind. I'm talking about banking and financial services in general. And the ones where a, a customer is strong enough in their 70s and their 80s to fight five years against such an institution, they deserve to have their case stated for the public record. Now listen to what the judge says about the bank's system of misleading customers. Paragraph 263 of this judgment, he says, the defendant, CIBC, attributed to the salesman fake titles, i.e. vice president and director, in addition to letting them use the title specialist in retirement investments. Those titles were false representations that misled the plaintiffs, hid reality from them, disinformed them, comforted them in their confidence in the salesman, reduced their distrust, and contributed to the fraud. 
paragraph 267, he goes on to say, The problem is that clients do not know that these titles are simply marketing tools, a means to convince clients that they have an excellent representative and recognition for the volume of commissions. Clients, therefore, believe they have a very special and eminently acknowledged representative when the representative has the title of vice president. So the titles create a false feeling of trust, comfort, and prestige, the role of which is not trivial in the commission of fraud. These misrepresentations are in the Criminal Code of Canada. They are criminal violations of the Competition Act of Canada, and none of them are prosecuted. Is this the real world I'm talking about or a fantasy world? Am I making this up? It feels like it sometime because I have an industry of 130,000 voices speaking against what I'm saying, telling you, the public, that everything is fine. During the time I was in the industry, of the 130,000 people who were registered and licensed in Canada to sell investments, the registration and license category was that of salesperson. Do you know that none of them in Canada call themselves salespeople? They call themselves everything but what they are licensed and registered as. How do we, how do we have this type of misrepresentation, this, this misleading, this taking you down the garden road which says, trust us, trust me, I'm not a salesperson, I'm your trusted advisor. How do we have this happen if the industry is protecting us? Well, I'm going to get to some of the secret ingredients that are required to make financial crime pay. There are only about four of them, maybe five or six. I'm only going to tell you about four here, so you can write down the ingredients if you want to put on a suit and tie and go make a billion dollars. This is how you do it. First of all, in the real world, we have something called the criminal code. And you can ask Art, Art Sanford back there about this. He knows all about it. I'm kidding, Art. You're, you're a great guy. In the, uh, the criminal code is real. It's tangible. You're all aware of it. We also have real police people who enforce it. Sorry for the bad graphics, but... On the other hand, I have a copy of the Securities Act for the province of Alberta where there's a different system of protection. In the securities industry, we do not invite police involvement. We have our very own industry police. They're called regulators. In our case, they're called self-regulators because we police ourselves in the financial services industry. Now imagine how much money we could make, you could make, if you had the ability to have your own police force privately paid. That's, that's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two is that we pay the salaries of the financial regulators in Canada, we being the investment industry. In your case, the police are paid by taxpayer dollars. In the United States, the Securities Commission is paid by Congress. In Canada, the securities regulators are paid by the securities industry. I'm talking about the Investment Dealers Association, the Mutual Fund Dealers, and the other hundreds of organizations claiming to be self-regulatory bodies. I'm even saying that the Alberta Securities Commission, which is a crown agency operated under IRS Evans, our finance minister, is not paid for by the taxpayer. It's paid by the investment industry through fees and charges levied on the investment industry. So the second ingredient is to not only have your own police force, which is number one, number two is to pay their salaries, to have control over their earnings. The third ingredient 
to making financial crime pay is to pay our own police and regulatory salaries uh, two or three times what they would earn in private industry. Does anyone here know what the, what the uh, premier of the province earns? Show of hands, it's been in the news lately. Shout it out. $213,000, thank you. And the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States, who is paid by Congress, his salary is capped at $162,900. The head of the Ontario Securities Commission, which is one of 13 regulators across the country um, and who was hired from the banking industry, his salary is somewhere north of $700,000 per year. And he has 90 employees within the Ontario Securities Commission who are paid more than the top nine at the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States. So we're getting really close to 100 people on the staff in Ontario alone paid more than the number one guy in the U.S. In Alberta, the top man makes more than $600,000 to police us or to protect us, depending on your view. So number three ingredient is to pay them two or three times what they would earn with our local police or investigative agencies or in a similar capacity elsewhere. High pay, in my experience, makes the Securities Commission employees highly compliant to the people who pay their salary. Some have said it's regulatory capture. You, on the other hand, don't pay their salaries. And strangely enough, if you, a member of the public, go to the Securities Commission with a, with a complaint, you are not even allowed in the front door. You are told that the Securities Commission refers all matters of complaint to the self-regulatory agency with which you are dealing. If you dealt with a mutual fund, you will be sent to the Mutual Fund Dealers Association, a lobby group that works for mutual fund dealers. You will get no, excuse me, no help. Last but not least, if you are shopping for a list of ingredients required to make financial crime pay, the uh, the greatest one I think is to give the financial industry permission to violate the law, and that is just a fantastic gift that we have. Imagine if you could go to the uh, to a judge and receive permission to violate the law. The last time I spoke to a policeman who asked who uh, asked how they could do that, they would have to go to a judge, get permission, provide reasons for something as simple as putting a, a, an investigation into someone's home or that type of thing. They do not very often get a chance to violate the law. If I want to rob a bank, I don't get to violate the law, no matter how much money I pay to people who enforce the law. If a bank wishes to rob me or you, they can go to the Securities Commission, who they pay, and they can apply for permission to violate the law. These permissions are called exemptive relief applications, and they are done by the thousands. I have a list here. It's 104 pages long. There's about 20 uh, applications on each page. And I took this to Ottawa to the Standing Committee of Finance and showed them and told them, this is not the complete list. This is just the table of contents of the amount of applications for exemptive relief that you can find. Exemptive relief for Nortel, for Crocus, for Concrete Equities. I spoke to everyone before Concrete Equities received permission to violate our laws. Now they have $800 in the bank. They started with $800 million. So if, um, 
on your table there is a copy of, of one such application to do with this latest asset-backed commercial paper crisis, and, and uh, you can read it afterwards. On the application, highlighted in orange, I received this from the uh, Securities Commissions that granted it, are the only reasons that our Securities Commission will now give regarding the granting of exemptive relief. They say this, and I quote, as their reason for giving relief to sell a toxic product to our community. Each of the decision makers is satisfied that the test contained in the legislation that provides the decision maker with the jurisdiction to make the decision has been met. Does anybody understand that? Is that in any way a justifiable reason to allow tainted products into our financial system? What if I were to tell you that the Canadian Food Inspection Agency receives money from food producers to bring tainted food into our supply system? What if I were to tell you you're eating that today? Well, I'm here to tell you you're investing in that every day, and you have no idea. The police are invited. <clears throat> when you combine these ingredients together, you get a system designed to run on connections, cor corruption, and cronyism. You get a system designed on worst practices. For my industry, it allows us to make billions of dollars, and it makes billions of dollars by making crime pay. Nothing we do is illegal if I get legal permission to violate the law. I have a free ride. <clears throat> this is ultimately the fault of our politicians. The finance minister, Iris Evans, who supervises this and is fully aware of it, and yet does nothing. She refuses to even speak to the issue. It's ironic that a billion dollars was put into Alberta Treasury branches, a billion dollars worth of toxic investment paper, effectively bankrupting the Alberta Treasury branch. That's 47% of all the deposits of your Treasury branch, government-owned bank, were put into toxic investments that Iris Evans allowed. Iris Evans supervises the Treasury branch. Her left hand did not even know what her right hand was doing. The city of Lethbridge is out $32 million. The University of Calgary, $18 million into these products. Uh, I've talked to a gentleman here who's come down from Silver Lake who had in the neighborhood of half a million dollars in this product. He's grateful he got his money back. He said if he'd had over a million dollars in it, his money would not be returned. So these ingredients, these, these four ingredients that allow us to get on a slippery slope, among other things, they allow, they allow a number of other things to happen, but they're all sort of along the same lines. They allow commission salespeople get to label themselves as trusted advisors, as vice presidents, as retirement specialists, as anything but what they are truly licensed as. Just so you know, the 13 securities commissions got together, and 31 days ago today, September 28th, they changed the laws so that the word salesperson is no longer in the Securities Act. Um, I'm sure they didn't do that to protect you. They didn't tell you about it. They just thought that that little piece of misrepresentation was going to catch them someday. So they've stricken the word salesperson from the act. It's been there for 20 years that I've known it. Another thing you get is you get four out of five salesmen selling their clients the highest cost mutual fund in the country. I'm not making this up. I'm referring to mutual fund sales statistics while I was in the business. 80% of the mutual funds sold in Canada were sold using the highest method of compensation, even when a lower method of compensation was available. My code of conduct in the industry says that I have to put my clients first. 
where in the hell does it allow 80% of sales to be in, in a product that puts the investment advisor first or the investment salesperson? You get double dipping, running commissions on top of fees, fees on top of commissions, salesmen charging two or three, earning two or three forms of compensation, most of it hidden and invisible to you, the vulnerable public. You get all of these and other sales tricks designed to earn an additional 10% approximately from your investments. So what's wrong with 2%? What's wrong with pickpocketing your people by 2% of your return every year? Everybody does it, was what I was told. There's no, uh, there's no clear law. There's no law that says don't pickpocket the client by 2%. Well, what happens is, and you're not even aware of it because it's so minor, 2% taken away from your returns over the lifetime of your investment will cut your future retirement in half. My industry knows this. You might not. If I reduce your returns by 2%, in other words, if I t- increase my take on your investment costs by 2%, that million dollars that you hope to retire on in 35 years will only be a half a million dollars because of that 2% compounded damage. And I will own the other half million dollars. That's one of the secrets the investment industry knows, and you might not. It's not a complete robbery, and that's why the police aren't often involved. You can't point to it and say, someone has taken my money and ran to Mexico. It's, it's nearly invisible. It's just a system of, of methods to pick your pockets at a small rate, and the investment industry gets away with it each and every year I've been in the business, and we're getting better and better at it and finding new and better ways to part investors from the rightful returns. About the time I was leaving the investment industry, the latest and the greatest trick for parting your money, parting your, your client from another 2%, was to sell clients out of all their independent mutual funds and switch them over to our house brand product, not an independent product, our own in-house investments. We learned that we could earn up to 26 times more money if we stuck our clients into the house brand. We could charge more for it. We could advertise that it was an elite brand of superior investment, and we could keep all of the management fees in-house instead of giving them to an independent supplier like Templeton or Trimark. Fully 91% of the mutual fund sales in 2007 were made into wrap accounts, which include house brand products. The statistic is in, your, uh, in the documents that's on your table uh, centerpiece. Let me wind up, and we're going to have the uh, we're going to have the video as they serve lunch, or maybe when it quietens down just a little bit. We'll watch it then, but I'll wrap things up. Um, as I was mentioning, there's a, there's a little popcorn thing at the center of your table with some documents in it. In the spirit of misrepresentation, there's no popcorn in there. It's, it's documents that relate to some of the things I'm saying here. I don't want you to think that I'm making any of this up. I guess what I'm actually saying is there is a world of make-believe and there is a real world. And I'm here to tell you that the investment industry is selling you sometimes a world of make-believe in that uh, trust and integrity category. So the, the, the video is going to show you uh, my experience of how I witnessed an investment firm able to put a billion dollars into their pockets at the expense of all their clients, trusting and vulnerable clients. Uh, and no sooner did I finish spending four years of my life and driving my wife crazy and I get this thing ready to put on the Internet than I wake up to uh, $32 billion missing in the Canadian economy with asset-backed commercial paper. 
So I, I just start to think I have a handle on on, uh, on fraud and, and salesmen pocketing two percent of people's assets, and I realize it's at the uh, investment firm level. The firms are actually doing this by design, and I just figure that out, and I realize that it's at the regulatory level above that, and I just figure that out, and I realize the politicians are the ones in charge of the regulators, and they're turning a completely blind eye to all of this. And what does it matter? It's only. $32 billion for one crime, $32 billion. I can add up on the fingers of one hand more crimes every year in Canada played upon you people than, than the damages of each and every other crime in the country. Justice Canada website puts crime at $40 billion a year. I can get to $40 billion with about two or three fingers. Northern Telecom alone was $366 billion dollars. Please think of that as we, uh, as we have our lunch and when the serving and the things quiet down, we'll listen to the uh, video and answer some questions afterwards. Thank you very much.